Welcome to Inside the Sports Car Paddock on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. Brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. We have a packed episode this week, starting off with our traditional opener, where we get smart. Courtesy of our friend Jeff Brown, Motor Racing Engineer Supreme. Starting off talking about the upcoming IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship race this weekend, the Mid-Ohio Sports Car Course, some of the engineering challenges Jeff and every other engineer will face, and Jeff brings us inside some of the unique aspects of what it takes to go quickly at Mid-Ohio, so if you are a young engineer, a veteran engineer, a young driver, etc., there could be some interesting items here for you to take away if you will be competing at Mid-Ohio. And then with Jeff, we close on setup windows. How do you make them bigger? Is it possible? Is a narrower setup window the one that will help you create the most speed and the absolute most competitive and hopefully dominant car? So work around this somewhat nebulous topic of setup windows. Every vehicle is different. Every car has different demands. How do you get the most out of it? And how do you deal with some of the either inherent limitations or the exceptional freedoms that are found with each car? So that's the main thing that we drill into here with Jeff. Then we move into the meat of the show, all brought to us by our good friend, Graham Goodwin, my co-host, our co-host of the Week in Sports Cars show. He starts off with Martin Brundle coming home last weekend after a class win in the VLN on route to getting his ring permit, the good old Nürburgring. So he looks back at some of his other post-Formula One years in motor racing and also uh, just gives us lots of good stuff because that's what our pal Martin Brundle does. Move on after that to young Oliver Webb. Talks about his impressions of driving the Janetta LMP1 car after a short test run here last week at Aragon. Then we move on to our pal Felipe Albuquerque talking about contrasts between his duties in IMSA and the ELMS also gives us some thoughts as a former factory pilot about where LMP1 is headed. Also his role in developing young drivers, plus a little bit of DPI and some thoughts on BOP. We have two more guests after Felipe, that being American driver Will Owen talking about Hunkos racing in IMSA's DPI category and also contrasting between that program and his ELMS efforts in LMP2. We bring ourselves home with former Nissan Motorsports boss Darren Cox, who speaks about the Citroën C1 24-hour race he just completed, some of his other successes in 24-hour racing, and then a little bit about Le Mans, IMSA, and the WEC. So that is a fun roster of six folks, starting off with Jeff Brown, moving through Martin Brundle, Oliver Webb, Felipe Albuquerque, Will Owen, and Darren Cox, and our Inside the Sports Car Paddock show, brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. Jeff Brown, we are back for the 15th episode, I believe, of Inside wow. the Sports Car Paddock, led off by you doesn't feel like we've done 15 episodes but uh i I gotta roll let's keep counting up i guess exactly exactly they've all been on shocks nope nope they haven't well but they could have been they could have been well our next one at the request of one of our listeners was uh to call it uh uh, damping 102 just to be completely confusing (laughs) but i'll tell you brother it's been awesome to see all of the feedback i know i've received directly some of that to you and i about your dampers 101 episode that we did last week and i think we're gonna have to get to a a 102 here pretty quickly because a lot of folks want to know a lot more 
Yeah, yeah, I think that'll be that'll be fun, and it's uh, so it's cool about the way you do it, Marshall. Is you know uh, the fans get to fans and interested people and smart engineering people, and some of the questions I've gotten have been like, "Holy smokes, these guys really know what's going on." So it's uh, it's great to be able to you know bring what people want to hear to them every week. So I always look forward to it. Well, let's kick off. We're going to do two topics today. One of them has become a little bit of a standard practice, and that is we've had folks say, hey, when you guys are going into an IMSA weekend, can you tell us about the engineering challenges, the general technical thoughts that might be taking part in what you're going to be doing, Jeff, with the Core Autosport Nissan on Rogue DPI, but just also maybe in general, knowing that there could very well be young engineers, young whomevers who might be there for a NASA race, SCCA champ car chump car 24 hours of lemons who knows what but right figure we can try and educate folks a little bit about mid ohio and then we're going to close on the primary topic which is setup windows a a definite black art hard to define at times but talk about setup windows because that's a huge factor of what makes a team competitive but let's go mid ohio sports car course coming up this weekend imsa weather tech Sports car championship round might have some bad weather here. What do you think about when you're planning, you're trying to come up with thoughts on how to make a prototype, a GT or whatever, work around a place that might not have optimal grip compared to some other circuits? <laughs> right. Yeah, it's and and you've kind of hit on it. That's the, the first thing we do when we go to any new as in new this year or we haven't been there recently um track is we think about the grip level of the track and a a lot of the casual fan would think well they're all asphalt tracks it's not like you're on dirt one weekend and and gravel the next and you know we're not rally cars here we're all on asphalt tracks how can the grip level change that much well it changes but it changes tremendously and the tracks just inherently have different grip levels. Um, mid Ohio is one of the, is probably the slipperiest, least grip, lowest, uh, overall grip level track that we run on. And even compared to Laguna Seca. Yes. Uh, yep. Yeah, I would, if I were ranking it and we do, we, and, our drivers, we uh, we kind of try to rank tracks in, you know, take your basic 1 to 10 scale, and we rank them on, you know, what grip level would this track be? And I'm not going to give away our exact ranking of what we think, but it's low, and it's as low or lower than Laguna Seca. Wow. Um, it, it's just getting worn out. The track is just just getting worn out. And, you know, you, you get a new track like Watkins Glen when they repaved it a few years ago, and it's gotten massive massive grip and and they used uh being a nascar owned track they use some pretty pretty good asphalt mix or whatever you know i'm not a paving guy but uh boy it it has massive grip and mid ohio is on the opposite end i don't know when it's been last repaved actually i do remember during my grand am days when they repaved it and it was really good that must have been we're looking at 2003 or 2003 four yeah yeah yep someplace in there so you know it's been 15 years or more and the thing it's just worn out and and that's the cool thing about it a lot of people would say oh that's and they need to repave it 
I think actually no. I hope they don't repave mm. it because because it it lends a different challenge. You know, um, just look at that. It's one of the cool things about IMSA racing or racing in in the U.S. because of the various tracks. We went to Daytona, which is kind of a mid-level grip track, but it's high speed and then a bunch of slow speed stuff in the infield. Very unique kind of track. Next race, we go to Sebring, the bumpiest, crazy bumps, you know, I mean, heck, they even have the hashtag respect the bumps. I mean, it's known for that. And so now that's completely different than Daytona. Then we go to Long Beach. Now we have a no grip plus bumpy track and street course where your walls, you know, right at uh, the exit of every corner. And so, and now we go to mid Ohio. It's a natural terrain road course. You're thinking road Atlanta, road America, Mossport. Nope. It's not like any of those. It is super low grip. It also has a very fast lap time. The lap time at mid Ohio is the same lap time as at Long Beach. It's a, it just happens fast. You're going to run a minute, 15 second lap on a 2.25 mile natural terrain road course. So it's fast plus no grip. Plus now we have elevation changes that we haven't had on any of the tracks we've come up to. <laughs> and so it's like the opposite end of, well, I guess there's no real ends. It's, it's like a, it's like a star kind of, it's at one point of a star way different than anything else, which to me is awesome because it's a different challenge for the drivers. It's a different challenge for the crews. The pit lane at mid Ohio is on a slope. So now the cars roll backwards when you're not on the air jacks. Um, It's, it's completely different challenge for everybody. And that's why I hope they don't repave it because it presents that challenge. They repave it. And now it's just like a, like super grippy Watkins Glen. Um, So anyway, everybody will have to be looking at their, their setups from a low grip standpoint because it's early in the year and nobody's been running on it all summer. The grip is even lower and then that presents the fact that it will change massively from practice to practice to practice as rubber starts to get put down. So not only does it start out low, it gains a little bit and will change. So it'd be one thing if it was low and stayed consistently low the whole weekend, but it will be low and go to pretty low and then somewhat low and then just end up at low. You know, it's so... That's another challenge. It's a super moving target because the track hasn't been run on all year. So if we look at the grip challenge, you cannot magically add grip to your chassis. Uh, You can't compensate for what is lacking with the track surface itself, but you can do your best to maximize mechanical grip, aero grip, and so on. Mm-hmm. where do you work in that general mindset? And I would maybe draw back to a conversation we had, I believe not too long ago about circuit of the Americas, where despite it being a relatively new track, it's grip level is low. And right. so as a result, instead of it being, as you mentioned, say a Watkins Glen where the track surface itself is like Velcro, just you know locking into the tires 
and shouldering the majority of the cornering responsibility at a place like Mid Ohio or a Laguna Seca, etc., with the track surface not being a big friend and partner in that area, it usually consumes a lot of the tires grip at a higher rate uh, at a faster speed as well because if you're going to corner quickly brake accelerate do all of those things at the level that you're hoping to or wanting to you're going to have to burn up the consumable uh, on the vehicle since the track (laughs) itself isn't really helping you that much or as much as you might hope yeah yeah it's 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 a compromise like every every racetrack setup is a compromise but it's you're you're frustrated at the compromise like oh i really i have to do this and what it amounts to is like you said you can't there's just not a dial where we can just turn up grip but we can do some things to try to gain that grip back and it's it's the standard softer you know, you can run softer springs, softer shocks, softer bars, all, all the things you can do. Because if you carry it to its, its extreme, and, and I like I like doing this for by way of example. Let's say we turned up and we were going to have to race on a hockey rink. And you went, okay, so now it's complete glare ice and I have to turn around a corner. If the car was really stiff when you turn the corner, it would make those cornering loads push right into the tire. The tire would have nothing to grip onto and it would just slide. Think about what you do or what a dog or a cat does when you put them on ice. Do they, if you locked your arms and your, and if you were a uh, four-legged animal, all your arms or paws or whatever you got, and you locked those solid, you would just slide across the ice. But if you kind of, were real supple and kind of let your arms be soft and just kind of flex and such. Yeah. Yeah. You could, you could maybe make a little grip and you wouldn't slide as much. That's exactly what we're doing with the car. The the four tires are, you know, your um, extremities, if you're a cat and you need to be nice and gentle on them and let them move a little bit and be soft on the, on the surface because you don't want to put a big load, stiff load into your paws or your tire because you'll just slide. So that's what we do. We soften the bars, soften the shocks, soften the springs, which is just like what the cat does. The problem is we have – the difference is we have an aerodynamic – big aerodynamic platform here with wings and underwings and things like that. And what happens to us is when we make it soft, now that moves around the underwing of the car moves around and it's loses downforce that that underwing produces downforce at a very specific angle, front to rear roll angle, side to side and height. And so if we go softer with all of that, that height of that underwing changes a lot more during a lap. It The uh, rake of that changes, the roll of that changes. And so we lose a bunch of aerodynamic downforce, which is what helps push the tires into the ground and make grip. And that's where the compromise comes in. How soft do you go and how much aerodynamic loss do you get because of that? And where's the right balance? And then thinking, 
okay, that might be good for now, free practice two or whatever we're running, but it's going to get potentially at mid-Ohio grippier and grippier as the race goes on. So you need to kind of anticipate where it's going to go um, for the race because you go the other way, you go too soft, the aerodynamic platform's moving around, you go too stiff, and you just don't make the grip because there's not that much grip in the track. So the first thing we need to learn about is this Brown family throwing cats on ice thing. That's a rather interesting, uh, uh, I guess, form of weekend fun, but maybe we'll save that for a future episode. Well, let's cover off a few other mid-Ohio specific items, Jeff. So if we're looking at where this falls on the IMSA calendar, it is our very first, call it normal endurance event. First one was 24 hours. Second was 12. Just came off of 100 minutes at Long Beach. Now we're finally getting into the meat of the season, the two-hour and 40-minute uh, events. Give us some thoughts on planning strategy for that, knowing that the lap is, as you mentioned, fairly short. Mm-hmm. And also the fact that, again, weather prediction is we could be a wee bit cold, if not wet this weekend. Uh, heck, we're also kind of starting off the, I guess you could say, the grind almost of the IMSA championship now. So couple of things here all converging at mid ohio how are you managing and or thinking about them from a timing stand standpoint it 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 gets to as you said the grind of the grind makes it sound like it's not fun it it, it, it's it's still the best job in the world but it is the you know we're going to knock out five or so of these two hour and 40 minute races and it's the it's the normal kind of what we expect each, each, each race. So we're looking at, you know, your normal two and a half pit stops kind of thing. And a half a pit stop is what makes it real, real interesting and real fun because it's not just a normal, you know, pit twice and you're done. There's a lot of options based on that last half a pit stop and what can happen. Um, you're, we're looking at, um, uh, driver change potentially the first stop or maybe the second stop. Some people will do it on the second stop. Um, uh, a lot of strategy from you're, you're a half a stint off. Do you take that half a stint? Do you do that early or late, you know, back timing the race like a lot of people will do, or do you hope for yellows last year? It's crazy to think, but here we did a race with all four classes uh, last year there was three, but it's still it's about the same number of cars on a natural train road course with huge gravel traps all over the place that you can't get out of. And there were zero yellows, the whole two hour and 40 minute green flag the whole way. Nobody would have expected that. So now as a strategist, you got to think, is that going to happen again? Because if you knew that was going to happen, your strategy is completely different than if there were some yellows thrown in there from a fuel standpoint, from a driver change standpoint, from a tire use standpoint. So you're looking at, you're, you're looking at a lot of variables, even though, you know, it's, it's under three hour race and we just did 12 and 24 hour races. You think those would be more complicated. This is actually more complicated strategically. Um, I wish I knew if there was going to be some yellows, um, the trend has been toward less and less and less. So maybe there'll be very few yellows or maybe people are getting into that 
part of the season now where they start going crazy and a little more desperate for points because they're not doing as good as they think they wanted to. And, and we get some yellows. It's impossible to figure out. So the 240 races are really interesting because the, the, it's not straightforward on pit stops. You'll see some fuel savings to try to make that half a stop. Like I said, everybody's going to be in the prototype class about a half a stint off. And so what do you do? Do you save fuel or do you go like crazy and take the splash? Or do you go like crazy and hope for a yellow so you don't need the splash? Or do you commit early, um, kind of like we did at uh, Road America last year? Do you commit super early to trying to save? And then that goes gets blown out of the window when a yellow comes out and you've saved and run slower than you could have. Um, but a yellow comes out and you didn't need to do that. Or does it go green the whole way and you get lucky and it works out? So all the more strategy options and strategy things that the fans can watch in this race than there are at a Daytona or a Sebring, which makes it super exciting. So, you know, watch for cars to pit early. Watch for cars to maybe even skip some early yellows because they're on their green flag only. We're going to back time the race and pit right when we need to, to make it right to the end. Um, there'll be some interesting strategies played out. And, and that's, that's, what's cool about the two, two hour and 40 minute races. And it's why I'm looking forward to mid Ohio. Let me close on one other thing that came to mind. That is mid Ohio ish specific, Jeff. So mm-hmm. we're talking about, track surface dictating the engineering mindset knowing that you do not have a track that is going to help you very much to make grip knowing that softer in general again we're just talking very general terms across a variety of cars softer is going to be faster around mid-ohio how do you work with drivers of varying skill and i guess hand speed where you might have some, say a Juan Montoya who comes to mind, whose car control is from another planet and is someone who you might be able to go a little bit stiffer with him in the car, even though the car would probably tend to slide a bit more and be something that is definitely harder to control. But with someone like a Montoya, he's a guy you know could handle that. But maybe yep. if you're, again, since we're talking IMSA's two-driver lineup, maybe his teammate is not so much in that crazy outer space, hand speed and car control world. And maybe for that driver, something a little bit softer would be the way to go. Is there anything you have seen in some of the driver combos you've worked with where you've maybe asked the either the AM or the one who isn't an all-time great, let's say, to deal with something that's a little bit outside their comfort zone, knowing that when the, the real crazy pro is in the car, they can do exceptional things that might win the race. Do you push that far into that zone? Curious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's, it is something that every, it, it's again, what makes sports car racing unique. And what I think from a race engineering standpoint makes it fun and challenging is that you, we talked about compromises on the setup for the track you're also compromising for your drivers and you have to hit now that we're into part of the schedule you have to hit 
your setup for your two drivers. And as you said, they're not, they're, they're unlikely to have, want everything exactly the same. So it comes actually into strategy. Part, the first thing you do is one of those guys will be finishing the race and that's going to be decided upon by various factors. And I don't know how each team decides that for our team. It's pretty straightforward. We're going to finish Colin um, because you want your, in our case, you want your pro driver rather than your semi pro in at the end of the race. So that's simple for us. But when you have a two pro lineup, there's various ways that's decided, but, and I don't understand how, how each team decides that, but, but they will make that decision and they'll make that way before the weekend starts. So then the race engineer starts factoring that in. And if you get to a crossroads with your two drivers, one guy wants it one way, one guy wants it the other way, you'll generally tend to favor the guy finishing the race because that's the guy that's got to be on full kill, you know, when it comes time to try to win the thing and you want the car to suit him the best. The same token, you don't want your first guy to be struggling with the handling of the car because it doesn't suit him and be slow at the start and get you behind. Because in the case of Mid-Ohio last year, if you got behind early, there were no yellows. And so you put your the guy that the car set up for in at the end of the race and the car's perfect for him, but he's starting 25 seconds behind, you're in a world of hurt. So you might be better making it better for the first guy and a for the second guy but the combination is a better result. So, and, and Mid-Ohio is one of those things, one of those tracks, because it's so out of the box from a, from a grip standpoint, drivers, you know, the car's going to be sliding around more, no matter how soft you go, no matter what you do with the setup, it's going to move, slide, not feel good on the brakes, not put the power down good, be snapping loose at the exit of the corners, all the things drivers don't like. There's going to be a lot of that. So the race engineers are going to hear, you know, all the things. I guarantee you nobody's going to hear, yeah, the car is great. Don't touch it. It's fantastic. It's going to be complaint after complaint after complaint. And you're just going to have to come up with a way to favor your finishing driver for sure and not hurt your starting driver too much such that you get behind and your finishing driver can't – can't make a attack at the end well let's move into our primary topic although i think we just gave mid ohio the treatment of almost being a primary topic (laughs) and that is setup windows so although i wish we could place an order with name the company hi nissan on dpi hi folks at Liget. hello folks at ferrari and your 488 gt3 of the various options we would like when purchasing the vehicle we would like to opt for the wide setup window. Um, it's not something we can check on a box on the order sheet, my friend. And I'm hoping you can maybe share some anecdotes up front on you tend to find out what a car has to offer you once you get your hands on it and start to run it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, knowing that you have an extensive career in IndyCar, NASCAR, sports cars, you name it. Before we get into the finer art of setup windows, managing it, big, small, how can you affect that possibly from an engineering standpoint, you share some inputs on first interactions with a variety of vehicles and what some of them were like from a setup window standpoint. Yes, it's it, it, 
that is a, a something I would like to order because is a wide setup window because it makes you it makes you faster it makes you perform better over the course of a race the wider that window is and and what we mean just to define what what a setup window really is it's it's kind of two things that but they go along with each other a wide window from a setup standpoint means that the car can operate fairly well over a wide range of conditions so it works good on low grip tracks mid grip tracks high grip tracks it works good mechanically and on so slow speed corners it works good aerodynamically in high speed corners so that's kind of the the window of the whole car and the setup window is what variations of the setup we can use to put us in a good handling situation so if you had as an example a, a narrow setup window would be like you make two millimeters of front ride height change and the car goes from massive understeer to undrivable oversteer with a two millimeter setup change of the front ride height that's a narrow setup window that's hard to deal with a wide setup window is that you can you can miss that by a little bit or change that by a little bit or change other things by quite a wide range and nudge the, the handling of the car a little bit one way or a little bit the other way. And that gives you more options. And so, so some cars that's inherently built into the car, the physics of the car, you know, you have a, a Porsche 911, with where the engine is, you're going to be in a different setup window than you would be with a 488 GT3 Ferrari with the, a mid-engine car. Um, the tires affect the setup window and its um, sharpness of the of the actual feel of the car quite a bit. Um, the overall weight distribution, the you know the the big the big design elements affect that, which makes it then hard to change with actual setup components. So what happens is you get a car, you go run it for the first time. And obviously first you'll look at how it compares to other cars that you've run. So for us, a good example would be, we ran the Orica LMP2 car last year, and we had a decent understanding of that car by the end of the year. We got our Ligier Nissan, and we have suspension drawings and we have aerodynamic data from the manufacturers. And so we quickly look at how the two cars compare. And then, so we have an idea of what we might be up against or what we might be benefiting from. And we take it to the track and we go run it. And the drivers will say, well, it does this a lot more than last year's car. It's much better here or much worse here. And then you start to adjust big, massive things like big changes in spring rate, big changes in aerodynamics, and try to kind of narrow that window. You know, we're trying to narrow down where we, where the setup operates the best. And then, so you've narrowed the window down to some range where we, a range of springs, range of shocks, range of wing angles that the car seems to operate well in for this particular tire 
at that particular track that we're testing. So now we have our our basic window of the car, and then we can go to each weekend and adjust within that window um, and try to get the best performance over all the conditions that we expect. So one thing, Jeff, that was very interesting, knowing that you have run the Eureka 07, which you mentioned, and uh, at least from what I've heard from drivers and engineers who worked with its, I guess, direct competitor in LMP2, that being the Lige JSP217 is one, which you used to great effect last year, almost won the championship that with that Areca, much friendlier from a setup standpoint, even just from a driving standpoint. Uh, this obviously being a, a, I guess we could say a wider or happier setup window. And the Lige, while capable of going very quickly in some places, more of a challenge to find that happy setup window. So I know that your experience is by and large with the Areca, but just interesting and maybe you can shed some light on even in a class where it's quote spec and things are meant to be very, very close to the same among the different chassis manufacturers, all using the same engine, same tire, etc. You can still end up with very different setup window characteristics. And in this case, just about everybody seems to have gravitated towards the Eureka 07 as a result. Yeah, it's, and that's something that whole setup window operating window thing is a major component of the ultimate performance of the cars of two different cars in races. And then as weird as it seems, the ultimate sales of that car, um, you know, uh, uh, the Liges could go, and we're talking LMP2 spec here, not not the car that we run because it's a different engine, different characteristics completely. So, but just looking at it from the outside last year, so and talking to some people, the you know, you could see obviously the Liges in WEC spec and ELMS and IMSA, they could run a lap time and they could as good as the Orica. The problem was it seemed like they were in a much smaller window that if the conditions of the racetrack changed a little bit or fuel load or tire wear changed a little bit, they would fall outside of their performance window and lose more than the Orica would. The same thing with the setup window, which was if you nailed it right, if you got it right, that spring rate, that two millimeters of ride height, that one degree of wing angle, it would kind of wake up the car and the thing would be blistering fast. But if you missed it by two millimeters or you didn't quite get the wing angle exactly where it needed to operate most effectively, you fell outside the window by a large percent. So it was much harder to get the same um, performance based on the conditions and the setup. I mean, I'll go back to, it just reminded me of IndyCar in the early IRL days when you had the Dallara and the G-Force. The G-Force IRL car was fast, really fast. But in my opinion, the reason it didn't become the dominant um, IRL car was exactly what we're talking about here. Its operating window and setup window was much narrower. It was much harder to hit it much harder to maintain the performance but on a single lap or a few laps or at 
a specific fuel load and tire wear characteristics, it was just as fast, maybe faster than the Delara in, in a lot of cases. But because the window was so narrow of that car, both setup and operating window, um, it in in the long run, and I'm talking long run of, of even just a stint or for sure a race and absolutely a season, the Delara was the was the best car. And I think we've seen kind of a parallel there in LMP2 with the uh, Orica and the and the Ligier. And that that's by way of demonstrating how important that is that that getting that setup, that's not what race engineers are looking for, is just getting that setup so it's just blistering fast for a lap. That's actually what most race engineers would classify as second or third importance in the list of things they're looking for. We're actually setting the car up to make it operate over a wide window of conditions. And hopefully the car we're given has a wide setup window to allow us to do that. So we don't have to get that ride height exactly right. And it's a combination. It's not just the ride height, but maybe there's an exact ride height that goes with an exact spring rate that goes with an exact wing angle that makes the car feel okay. And if any one of those three, and it's probably more like 50 things when you factor in camber and caster and toe and all your shock curves and all of that, if you if all those line up just perfectly, the thing is unbeatable. But if they don't, if one of them is outside the window, the car is terrible. What you need is a car where you have those 50 things. And if 20 of them aren't quite right, the car's still good. That's what you're looking for. And one other thing, the race engineers can actually work themselves into a box where they have made the window too small, the setup window too small, because they've run, they've picked this spring and this shock and this anti-roll bar, and now the whole setup philosophy has put them in a box where they've made the window. Now the whole car is, is performance is based on what the front ride height is because of all the other things they've picked. Where if they would have done a different job with all the other things, their window may be more open and they may be able to have different ride heights or different wing angles and still make the car operate well. So it's not only the chassis manufacturer that dictates the, the window of the car. The race engineer with his own setup can work himself into a box where you're just stuck and it's like, oh man, if I don't nail this one particular aspect perfect, the car is going to fall out the window and be junk. So let's go ahead and round out Jeff on a topic that I think within this setup window frame might be interesting to get some feedback on. And it's that knowing how in 2019, most of the cars that we work with on a pro racing level, even amateur racing level, we're talking about things that are homologated, highly controlled spec, something where you can't say, Hey, you know, I don't like the way the rear suspension performs on my spec Miata. And uh, boy, I just, I really have to nail that springing and and anti-roll bar and whatever combination perfectly. So I'm going to machine some new pickup points. I'm going to move this and I'm going to change that. And that's going to create a wider and happier setup window for me at the back of my car. 
knowing that that isn't so much of an option in so many forms of racing, any things you can think of or suggest working within that, again, kind of spec, don't touch it, got to work for the most part with what was delivered. Any things that come to mind where folks might be able to expand that narrow setup window even a tiny bit? Uh, there, there are some. Um, some of the homologation is when, when on a prototype, and I'm, I'm thinking on some of the GT cars. GT3s are a little tighter, more tightly homologated, but a GTLM or a, or a LMP2 for sure. DPI is a little more open on the homologation. Homologation actually lists various options and even for suspension geometry for pickup points so where the the brackets that the suspension goes into you can there's a there's a list of maybe three or four locations that are allowed so some of that's done because uh, these cars will operate worldwide on different tires different championships may have a different spec tire we were on continentals before which is going to probably require a different suspension geometry than a Michelin or a Dunlop like is used in ELMS and, and WEC. So they, they will homologate different suspension geometry options that are allowed. And, and why do they do that? Cause that opens up the window, just what we were talking about. It allows you to have a, a bigger window. Um, so some of those are allowed. Sometimes you wish they would have allowed more, options to make the window bigger and you can't as you said and you're just up against it so what do you do if, if you know you want to change the ticket uh, rear suspension geometry and you can't because of the homologation has, has you locked in at least then you need to understand what we'll do is we'll work on so why do we want to change it what do we want to change it to what are we trying to achieve okay we can't achieve it with geometry but Let's say we think it has too much squat when you stand on the gas, and we want to change that with geometry. Well, we can't. So what could we do to kind of we think about tricking the car or um, into, into thinking it has the geometry we want? So if it's squatting too much and we're going to change the geometry to prevent that, then maybe, and we can't, maybe we'll go, well, we'll run stiffer springs because that'll make it, that'll hold the back up and not let it squat. Maybe we'll run more low speed bump in the dampers, rear dampers to keep it from squatting. Maybe we'll stiffen our third spring uh, that'll keep it from squatting. And you kind of trick the car into doing what you really want to do a different way, but aren't allowed to. So that can that's a way to use the setup to widen the setup window that you don't have from an actual design standpoint. And that's used all the time. And that's where each car, some cars have a very unique, you know, engineer that's not familiar with the car could look at a setup sheet and go, wow, that just seems weird. Why do they run so stiff rear springs? I just can't believe, I don't understand why they would do that. Well, it's probably because the car has an inherent tendency to do something that the race engineer is trying to prevent by doing this kind of strange setup thing uh, that you wouldn't do on a, quote, normal car or a car that was operating the way you really wanted it to. So, yeah, you can use 
an actual setup items to trick the car into having a wider setup window or to fix, quote, fix a problem that it has that you're not allowed to fix through a redesign. And look at that. We just got smarter friends, all courtesy of sports car racing, motor racing, Yoda slash engineer, Jeff Brown. <laughs> you even got the white hair. Yeah, you know, we'll just paint you up green next. It'll work out just fine. <laughs> uh, well, thank you as always, my friend, for making some time. And, and it's not just making time. I mean, you uh, you have a deep, deep passion for sharing your discipline as a race engineer and hopefully inspiring, entertaining informing those who are fans wanting to know more those who might want to follow in your footsteps so you know how much i appreciate it and you get the feedback from our listeners saying how much they appreciate it so uh, not only thank you for that but we also get to see one another this weekend which doesn't happen as often as we would like so all kinds of fun coming yeah it'll be fun we'll see you at mid ohio and uh like i said i really enjoy it um the only thing uh better than talking about racing is actually actually going to do it and so both of us will be at mid ohio doing it this weekend and looking forward to it and we'll talk next week about um what happened and uh with the changing nature of mid ohio and all of that goes a topic might just uh appear magically from the events of the weekend if not we have a super long list of things people have sent in and um hopefully that list grows as well we're also now adding in the Brown family throwing cats on ice as a topic as well. So we'll that. <laughs> that's, uh, we're going to figure out some sort of testing plan to measure grip, paw okay. grip, and uh, yeah, all kinds of topics coming up here. All right, my friend, and definitely, dear listener, if you have engineering questions, technical questions, etc., be sure to send those in via social media to myself or Jeff. We will add them to the list and get to them at some point in time in the near future. So on the phone at the moment, on his way back from the Nordschleife after, well, what sounded like a wild race, uh, Martin Brugdorf. Martin, great to talk to you. Uh, congratulations, a class win. Yes, it seems that way. It was a race of survival. It rained really hard at one stage, and it was pretty much somebody off around every corner and, and on the straights as well, a lot of aquaplaning. So a bit of an obstacle race and one to be... Uh, Want to survive, and uh, there were eight cars in our class, and apparently we won. We won the class, but 192 starters. It's absolutely uh, amazing to see that number of cars pouring out of the pits for some minutes when they can put the green lights on. Uh, they're all trying to get out onto the track, and you know, in Formula One, we celebrated the double stack, the very impressive double stack of Mercedes-Benz at the Chinese Grand Prix, where uh, at some point that in a VLN race, you can look around and see 30 cars around you having a pit stop somehow sharing fuel pumps. I don't really understand how that all works, but somehow it does, and they seem to get organized. So fascinating. I love that track. It's my second event there, obviously, to get my permit so I can race later on in the year with, uh, with Alex. And uh, mission accomplished, 18 laps. I don't know how many thousands or tens of thousands of racing laps I've done in my life as I'm approaching 60 years old but to do 18 at the Nordschleife seemed like such a challenge and all the things you have to do you go back to school, you go into a classroom go around behind an instructor nine laps uh, unblemished in two different races totaling 18 
and finally get a permit. And it's tough. It's tough to get a permit there. Well, it's double congratulations, isn't it? That was clearly what was the um, the the objective today was to complete yeah. those laps of the permit. It did come with a class yeah. win, which again, congratulations. But I was chatting to Alex a little earlier this afternoon. It's been a little bit of a while. I mean, we were uh, we were kind of trying to track back. It twenty eleven, I think, was your last race win, actually with Alex and a radical SR eight. And before that, back yeah. to the early nineties in IROC, and of course at the Le Mans twenty four hours. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, uh, trying to think back, I finished on the podium in LMP3 2016 when I had some fun there with Christian England. I think we finished second you there. Did, yeah, United. And yeah, bits and pieces, and we just missed the podium 2014 at Daytona um, again with United. And yeah, uh, well. was it out there I was watching the video stream and it, it looked very hairy indeed there literally were cars going off left right and centre well I mean it's an unusual track right? it's nearly what 25 kilometres the version we use for VLN um, most of it the Nordsch life and it's very narrow bumpy uphill and down dale and sort of rivers running across the track so um, I think you just I don't, I don't know, you get a bit of a sixth sense for where you think the standing water might just be. I mean, it's the first time I've ever been around there in the rain, so mm-hmm. I, I was tentative, but it seems you think, well, I'm not pushing hard enough, and then you realise other cars around you, maybe more competitive cars are, because you have to do it in a permit car, which is minimum 1,400 kilograms and detuned and all of that, and you, you think, well, actually, I'm kind of keeping up with some of these, so... Maybe I'm not pushing it that hard, and then all of a sudden you get a big slide or the front and take off across the across the track like a dog chasing a rabbit or something. And well, where did that come from? Why did that happen? So uh, you, you did have to sort of watch it every meter of the way. But I think that's the challenge of the place. I just adore driving around there. Well, we we'll wait and see exactly what it is that you've got in store. We've had a flavour of that. Uh, talking to Alex, but no announcement yet. Can't wait to see what comes to that. Anything more? Anything more left on that? That kind of uh, that bucket list that you'd like to take off? Well, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I was jealous of Alex last year doing his permit, and I thought, well, why don't for a 60th birthday present, why don't I do that? Um, so that's that's the purpose of it, really. And then, obviously, I'm you know I'm hoping to race there with Alex later on in the year at the Nordschleife with Esther Martin. Um, and, and, you know, I've driven a lot of great circuits in the world over the decades, uh, but there were one or two on the bucket list I hadn't done, which was the Nordschleife. It nearly happened. No, I won't bore you with that story now, but it was a slightly terrifying. Tom Watkins parachutes me in one day and said he would just follow him. He'd teach me the course, but I now realise I would have probably had a massive crash and uh, hurt myself. But uh, luckily my teammate crashed on the way into the uh, pits on that particular instance in the 1980s um so i would never done the track i wanted to do it and um, bathurst would be another target i quite fancy other than that i think all the great circuits that i 
you can still do, I've probably done in, in many respects around the world. It's a cracker. Listen, for now, we'll let you get on your uh, your Eurotunnel uh, on the way back home from that class win. Martin Brunel, congratulations again, and good luck for whatever comes later, later in the year with Alex. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Well, that motor lane arrogant um, with Ollie Webb. Ollie, you just, uh, we had, uh, well, the, what can you say, the timing was immaculate just as you were going to get in the car, down came the rain. Uh, team decided to actually put a wet setup on the car. You've been out and what looks like a drying track. First thing is, how was she? Yeah, really nice. Very, very predictable. It's um, it, it's always a tough thing, like you said, obviously it rained as soon as we kind of got in and, and having not been in the car for about six months or, or anything other than a GT car, really. Um, I was expecting it to, to kind of blow my doors off straight away, which it did in terms of the speed, but um, the car was very, very progressive to drive and very user-friendly, which actually um, helped, really, in terms of getting back into the swing of things, because, um, as most drivers know, blowing off the cobwebs is, is half of it before you can even start concentrating on the car. But very, very usable car, um, and, yeah, very pleasantly surprised, because in greasy conditions with a bit of wind, the first time the car's been out in the wet... Um, yeah, I thought it was going to be all thrown at me at once. <laughs> First time this car's been seen out of a brief test at Silverstone with the AR engine. You, I know familiar with the older versions of this. So tell us about the drivability with that. It has been a unit that in the past, in its previous iterations, has had its issues. It seems to be completely different now. Yeah, I mean, I don't know enough about the changes um, they've made, but from, from the kind of three or four laps that I got um, today, it seems to work really well. Um, very very drivable um, a big thing in, in these cars with the amount of power and torque they've got with how big they are is being able to short shift and, and get around the small bits so it's often as amazing as the Porsche curves is it's it's often the tighter smaller corners that, that win or lose you lap time when you're qualifying around Le Mans and, and, and this car is very good at short shifting and, and with the engine it managed to, to deal with that because it's, it's a lot of power and a lot of torque to put through to put through something like that so it, it handled it very well so I'm more impressed by what it can do in the slow speed than, than the kind of obvious okay it's mega in the high speed which it is I guess that's the other point really you've had real success there on P2 you've done on P1 driver this is a new car for you tell us a little bit about the difference not between the P1 cars between P2 and this about the driving experience about what is it that appeals um well, it's like it's like a free facelift, really, in, a, in an LMP1 car. It's uh, it's um, the most expensive facelift you'll ever get. It's it, the, 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 I haven't driven the brand new P2 cars. I was in the last year of the older P2 car. Um, okay, yes, they're a lot lot quicker now the P2s, but these P1 cars now, and I think kind of the 919 um, special tribute cars, kind of proved that how quick this can be with the amount of surface area this car's got. Yes, it's big and it's a bit heavier than Formula One, but the sheer grunt these things have got and the downforce when you go and watch at this last corner here at Motorland Oregon uh, is, is massively, massively impressive and I think when you get Formula 1 guys coming in and, and having a go like a lot of them have I think even they're kind of a bit blown away how this massive bus-like thing is, is doing what it can do Quick here as well I mean that, uh, that, that back straight here these cars are proper quick even in the wet Yeah, even in the wet it was... Um, I knew I was only going to get kind of a, a few laps and um, I was always always more to lose than there is to gain in these kind of situations but I knew if I didn't kind of go flat down that back straight the very first lap then I would just spend the whole three four laps building up to it so I just kind of did it straight away and yeah it's, uh, it definitely blew the cobwebs out immediately. 
well fingers crossed we're getting a bit more of an improvement of the weather you might get out on uh, something a bit more slick but yeah. for now thanks a million thank you in the United Old Sports truck this time with Felipe Albuquerque and um, Felipe great to be in arrogant not very sunny you guys are waiting on the weather as everybody else is here but we're here to prepare for Le Mans amongst other things you've had a packed season so far last time I saw you were testing a, uh, at Port Ricard tell me a little bit about the way that this season is beginning to come together for your programme here in Europe with United as well as what's been going on uh, in the US with Accident Press yeah very busy this year um, some testing as well going on here uh, there is lots, lots going on with uh, with the tire uh, development because we are doing the WEC uh, the, for the first time with United. United entered the car there, and uh, really happy to come back to to WEC and uh, and being possible to merge all these championships, which is great. And uh, now that actually the championship is out, maybe uh, I think IMSA uh, is trying to do their best to as well to not even clash a single race, so that even would be even better. Um, but uh, being busy doing the preparation of uh, of LMS, and uh, now we are here for to prepare the the tyres for the WEC next season, and obviously we take some of that time as well to prepare a little bit our race for Le Mans because we never drove in Le Mans with these tyres. Um, yeah, in America is all quite steady as as uh, as we like uh, in in a good way because. Uh, after those uh, shift of regulation in 2017, um, it's quite steady and, uh, and it's a great format. It's going well and I'm um, pretty happy to repeat it again. It's just great racing and uh, we won the last race and we are just fighting for the championship, which is, uh, is which is great and let's hope that I think it will be a championship until the end. You're one of a, a pretty select group of drivers that's driven more or less every generation of LMP car, two and one, yeah. over you know, <laughs> recent years. Tell us a little bit about the two cars that currently form your day job. The car that sits behind us in the garage, the Ligio with the Gibson engine, and the Caddy DPI. Just tell us a little bit about where they stack up in the in the great scheme of things over the last half a decade or so. Well, coming a little bit back as well, a bit, uh, on the on LMP1 when, uh, when I drove the Audi, it was a fantastic programme. Uh, but unfortunately not sustainable because the amount of money was going on there was just crazy and uh, hardly will come ever to that because I remember to have some episodes of uh, yeah let's do that and let's do this and it just you know 10 million was not a question you know it's just just let's do it and uh, I don't like this and uh, it was in a way it was a great project because we it was like I, I used to say it's like Aladdin you know you have like the lamp yep. and it's like you just make a wish and that wish it was, it was uh, eventually will be made. Uh, the question was always if it was on time or not. Uh, but if that was definitely priority, you just put it on top of the list, and that would be going on. So in that way, it was a, was great. Um, but we're in a different world now. But it's a different world, and and in the end, so now we have the LMP2. I think it uh, it was a very well organized uh, and and clever. Uh, regulation for everyone and the result I think is out there with so many teams buying the car and I think what is a clever thing about it is like you can see a team doing LMP3 and which is a reasonable simple car and uh, a gentleman driver can drive it and, and, and or more uh, a non-pro driver can drive it and it's great that it's pro drivers cannot drive it so yep. it just like separates the waters in a way 
And then this team, after one or two years, that they go around, they know how it works, they can upgrade to an LMP2, and they can run an LMP2 without issues because it's kind of standard parts for everyone. So that's very clever. It would have been cool now still to have, like, you know, Dallara and uh, Lee J. Simtit got there now with the tires, at least in the last year, to be on the same level as Oreca because Oreca did an outstanding job, and we should not take the credit of that. But in the end, Oreca needs to win to someone. Yes. And... That someone needs to put cars, and it's Ligier or whatever brand you want to call it, but now it's like Ligier, Multimatic, and Dallara, and it would be good to be in the same level so uh, the main uh, sell cars companies can have more cars in the, in the, in the, in the grid, and that would be uh, good for everyone, even for Oreca. That, you know? that, and that's a difficult thing to reverse engineer into those regulations, isn't it, without things like that no one really wants to see, like balance of performance in the class. It comes down to someone's built a better train set some would argue they had a head start with having the same chassis they'd had for previous years yes um, but the reality is we are what we are you guys did an awesome job at the end of last season yes with wins on the Michelin tyre we've got a tyre battle underway now yes in true LMS, which again you're smiling because we, we love that it is it is but, but, but I think in the end and uh, let me maybe go away a little bit of, of in, in the end the spirit of racing is yeah. like is about winning, right? But to be winning, you need to be winning against someone. If, in the back of the days, and it was a glorious days of LMP1, we're talking about six cars. Well, back in the time, Toyota was an match thing because they were not spending half of the money that Audi and Porsche were spending. So I remember to pass the big, you know, Buemi or, or a Toyota seeing it, I'll just get out of the way. I was even flashing them because they were not a competition. Porsche was a competition. And... But still, it's not great racing. I think great racing is like what when, when we see 18 cars in the LMS or let's say 11 cars in uh, or 12 cars in uh, in IMSA, and it's great racing and, and, and banging doors in there and with prototypes. That's what I'm calling about racing. Doesn't matter if there is like a high technology car in there that no one understands it, but the engineer and barely the driver understands uh, to how to make that thing work going around. So it just needs to be like good racing and finishing close and battling to the end after so many hours. So I think that's the, the concept. And, and then just the finishing is, I think what is important is like everyone should be able to have a shot to win. Okay, if they are not good, they need to understand what it's like. Is it drivers? Is it strategy team? Is it the car? Is it the tires? And then, then you get there. But one thing that I think, in my perspective, we don't want to see is like what is happening at F1. It's like Ferrari or Mercedes. No one else won a race in the last 10 years. That's boring, and we don't want that. I would like to win all the races, but that's not good for the show, and it eventually will end my racing because no one will be watching. And I don't like BOP, but I understand the concept, and I understand that I need someone else to beat, and I need people on the grid to be able for myself to stand out. Yeah. So, and... Yes, we have to accept BOP in a, in a clever way and in a fair way. And um, LMS is doing that with, uh, with the LMP2 cars. Uh, I don't know at to, to an extent it's fair or not fair. It doesn't matter. That's a different question then. Yeah. But I understand BOP and it's... Uh, even if a racing car driver that normally no one likes, I still understand the concept behind it. It has some advantages. It exactly. Gives, it gives us depth. It gives us variety for that matter as well. Definitely. Let's talk about IMSA for a short while. I mean, uh, IMSA, when you walk into that paddock, the depth of 
the package with the support races etc the quality of the teams particularly at the top end is pretty stellar yes it is it is part of that you've been a successful part of that people have noticed as they quite rightly should your abilities and you're now part of a team that is going to be battling away for race wins and championship wins tell us a little bit about from your perspective coming into that how does that feel how does IMSA feel in terms of the the orbit of world motorsport to you right now well, going to America, it's very interesting and, 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 and nice, and it's refreshing because it's just, just a different uh, uh, approach on racing to Europeans have. And and I think, you know, after spending a little bit of time there, I think they are right, in a way, because I think in Europe we complicated things too much. And there in America, it's just like we created a format, and they stick for it for long years, and why to do an upgrade on the front nose that barely no one sees it and you spend there like a lot of money and testing and doing whatever and just stick to standard that's it this is the racing help the other guys to improve their skills to come to a good level and go so in the end it's about the show and about investing 10% and getting in return like 80% and that's you can justify that to the big companies to the manufacturers and whatsoever and then so the show goes around but if you the, the, the investment is bigger than the return it's going to be about passion or CEOs that going into it and then when this CEO goes away because one way or another because it ends the cycle of, of running the, the, the job <laughs> then everyone is scared in the company because he knows that oh the CEO goes away we don't know if the new one likes so much smaller sport or if he likes you know uh, sailing uh, uh, boats or whatsoever so maybe the he goes the wind goes a change so in America that's that's clearly it's it's stable and it does not change ideas as the wind change in Europe so that's what I love in America and they stick to big engines they need to create a compromise to for example what Mazda is a, a smaller engine and we have a huge engine in a Cadillac but in a way we make it work and it, it's well, you're, sure, you're winning races so we winning are winning races. races but but again I, I think that a point there is like I, I think now we, we ran into a point now in IMSA that uh, people that see that our oh, Cadillac is winning everything but it's yes we're winning because okay we have maybe one year on top of Acuras, not not a Mazda. Mazda did a great evolution, but we're winning races because we are being spotless, like like on every single point. Like Mazda, I think they could have won Sebring, but unfortunately had a crash in when it was damp. Uh, one of the drivers had a, a run-out area, and th- that cost them the win because in pure pace they were there, and strategy would be more or less. The last race, Acre maybe was the ones to win. Well, Cadillac the 31 was very very quick, but I had didn't I didn't have the pace. They were like just in a different level than anyone else, but sometimes happens. But Acre would be the the second contention contender to win the race in my opinion. But you know we outran them in the strategy because we just didn't change tire and then see what it goes with the track position. Luckily, it went on, and we got the win, but not because of BOP and not because it's for Cadillac. It's not, and and I think that's a very strong, important point for people to understand that it's uh, you know, they're trying to. It would be it's good. The it's, it's the package. It's the package. It's the whole thing, and and they're good, but and and I don't want to say bad, but uh, we we have seen some mistakes from Acura and and eventually some Mazda. Uh, last year, Laguna Seca was their race to win. They were like by far the quickest they didn't have to even to push that hard in the traffic 
But eventually came the mistake and they would have the win and Laguna, which are so important for them. It didn't happen and they keep having like a great BOP. But I still understand it. It's great for them to win a race and the race goes on and we need just to do the best what we have with uh, in, in each race. Join in the... We'll call this a driver's lounge, shall we, in the, in the truck for yeah. the sport. <laughs> Phil Hansen in the corner there, your driving partner, also Will Owen, who just had a chat with about more or less the same thing. And I guess one of the real appeals for the team that Will's with, Unifast Racing, same, uh, they can have the same machinery as you guys. They can measure themselves against, well, let's face it, championship-winning yeah. teams and drivers. And yes, definitely. they've given themselves you know, a level that they want to achieve and presumably exceed. That is part of the kind of cool side of having these customer-available um, top-level cars in IMSA, isn't it? Yes. Is that, is that a mistake, do you think, for the other manufacturers that we've not got that? Uh, I think the, 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 I, uh, my, my opinion on that is, like, I, I th- it would be interesting but to have, like, a, first of all, a non-exclusive team to a manufacturer. Yeah. So... This is me if I would be yeah, running. Yeah, yeah. But then, obviously, there is some politics. Well, I will oh, yeah. go there into that. But, for example, it would be nice that Penske would not be the exclusive Acura guy. And it should be at least at least to one more team. So, at least, in, as I were flying two cars, we would have four at Penske's. Yep. The same to, to Mazda and the same to a Cadillac and to any manufacturer that comes in. And uh, and that would help for the show because this, the chances of a Cadillac winning, it's more than double yeah. than any other manufacturer so and then it attract other teams to come in so for example for Junkos that is new and, and JDC they have a path to go because uh, they, they are learning about the car but you know they are there and in America somehow the strategy you can do something a lot in there and some races they are, they've been already with great pace um, but they are learning and we know that our time of our gap is getting reduced, 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 and eventually they will have, they will be there. In a way, it's great for drivers and teams to measure their strength about uh, big teams and big drivers, and uh, that they're already established. It's gonna, it's, it's a hard task, but no one said it will be easy for either ways. You know, yeah. we, I need, and one thing that I learned a lot when driving with Phil and 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 Willow and and in these teams and. The, the delta that was in the, that is in the beginning I always know that these guys will put him into retirement because these guys will get him faster and faster and faster <laughs> they are absorbing everything I know and what I do and they look at data and they get yeah, they're high five over there it is it's just because but, but I know that and I have it in the back of my head and I have no problem with that because just the life is like that like it's the cycle of life in the end well, you say about the cycle of life you actually anticipated what was going to be my last question we got the two boys Um, it is a shift in your career path here and very many race drivers particularly in sports car racing you know as that career path moves forward find themselves in a situation where because we've got so much that is now pro-am or gold silver i'd rather say rather than pro-am that you do find yourself in a mentoring capacity do you get a buzz out of that do you get to enjoy that aspect of it yeah, some, yeah, some, yes, yeah. I enjoy because I don't let myself get into a position that I really don't like, and if yeah. it's a spoiled kid, and that not talk about it in front of them. Yeah, no, no, but but, but but I I tell them this straight away. Like, if you think you are here the boss or whatsoever, yeah. just just go home. I don't care. And 
And for me, the priority is being a professional driver, and I am. And I'm, my main program is IMSA, and I'm enjoying a lot driving with the with the United because, in a way, I'm uh, a lot of responsibility because, in a way, I towards the, uh, my opinion, it, it's guiding the team to the best. And if we're not performing, I need to advise them. It, it's in the end as well. It's my results are not going shine on, and I was super happy that it paid off going into the Michelin and having a, a meeting with the. You know, with Trevor Foster and Richard Dean and engineers, like, look, this is what we need to do. And obviously, we weight all the consequences and what we have on the table. And that's a different perspective. But, you know, in the end, it's all about responsibilities uh, that, you know, a young driver and uh, this coming up does not have the, you know, the capacity to do it, which, which is normal. But it, one day they will. Um, I enjoy that because I can still do both. And... Uh, and but you know if I were just doing coaching, it would not be my time. I believe okay. because I still have the other thing. Um, I enjoy it because in the end, these kids what we have here in the United, they they are nice kids and they learn and they they you know they, they, you can see the evolution and they are not spoiled and you and know they're and they're winning and they, they come along and they they they're opening to learn. If they would be spoiled and not giving a damn about what they're doing, then ah, I would consider again. Uh, to do this, but we are seeing more and more drivers doing that now, Harry Tinknell with the uh, LMS, because it's just where it goes, but especially in a time where LMP1 is where it is, like no one knows where it goes, so, and it's possible to do more than one championship, then let's do it, and the LMS is doing a great format yeah. in the meantime, so everyone wants as well to be here driving. In the uh, United Autosports carriage at Motorland Oregon, during the Michelin test, Weather's not been that great, kind to us, but it's getting better. But with Will Owen, Will, you're here with uh, back with United Autosports. Right. We've got the Ligier Gibson behind us, but now you've got this fantastic mix of opportunity to come back with these cars, but also the fabulous Cadillac DPI with Young Cars Racing, first uh, year for right. that, uh, yeah. uh, season for that team. Tell us a little bit about the impressions of the contrast, the pluses, the minus yeah. of. Well, the mechanical packages, right. but also the atmosphere in those two paddocks. Right. Well, first I'll say that I'm super thankful um, to have been a part of both these awesome teams for uh, with United for starting my third year, and actually also my third year with Hunkos, but now both at the same time. So I am really consider myself really lucky in racing to be with good groups of people like these. So um, everything is different. Starting with the series, everything is different. A, lo- a lot of it is because of the culture in America and the culture in Europe. And, um, you know, not in good or bad ways, it's just different. Like, um, in America, everything is, um, like, for example, there's um, maybe a couple less cars in the, in the DPI field, like, you know, 10 to, 10 to 13, but they're super competitive. And, um, you know, having manufacturer support, it's kind of, it's kind of a different um, approach in a way. And everybody's a platinum and every, well, not me, but everybody's super, super fast and everything is, like... Um, down to the wire, everything's rehearsed. I mean, I, like the teams in America are just amazing. But really, it's the same here. The teams here are amazing, and I, so probably the biggest difference is that um, you have a more of a mix of drivers. You know, silver drivers um, in, in the P2s here, and it's the same in the U.S. But um, there's more cars here, and they're all still very competitive. Um, but really, it's like the paddocks are very different because in Europe. You know, people just act a different way than they do in America. And when people go back and forth... We're well, nicer, we're more cultured. You know? Yeah, like, I don't want to say, like, any particular... Because, like, like, when um, people come to America, they're like, everybody is 
really strangely friendly sometimes. And then when Americans go to Europe, they're like, people don't just come up and talk to you like excessively, you know. You, and then, so people think Americans talk way too much, and then Americans think Europeans don't. We're talk just turning to words you're out. You realise that, don't you? Yeah, no. Let's talk about young guys. First year yeah. in sports cars for that team. Great to see them stepping up and stepping up into. You've just described it. Uh, a lion's den. Yeah. And they've got well, equal machinery in some of those factory, right? Truly factory backed uh, teams. Yeah. One of your teammates here is part of that, Philippe yeah. Albuquerque. Yeah, he is. That's going to be an interesting contrast. Yeah. Well, one of the biggest differences is that Hunkos is new to sports car racing, whereas when I am running with United, they have a lot of sports car experience. So. Um, we have really, really great support from, from Cadillac over there and Delara and everything and, and um, being on the Michelin tires as well. The whole package has been easy to put together in that sense. So we've had a lot of support and having that knowledge has not made it as difficult to just jump in. But at the same time, there are so many things that you have to learn that um, now I've had a couple years of sports car experience. So that was helpful for the team to have me bring some knowledge, but still that's just a little bit of the, the the whole operation you know like to learn how to run such a complicated race like a 24-hour race is so complicated in so many ways logistically and um just you know driver change there's so many elements that you don't have in sprint racing that the team has to learn and that i can do my best to sort of like explain a little bit how it works but it has to be by experience you have to learn by experience um and we did that at daytona and sebring and now we're starting to to really get into the groove and really work together as a as a team like i'm I wish that we had more time to practice because I think we'd be really, really, really good if we had more days. But it's just, you know, racing expensive. You can't just drive all the time. So. I guess one of the things that's a, that's a big change of Hungos is you are doing those long races. And those long races in IMSA come very early in their debut season. Yeah. And when problems hit, it's not all over. Right. That's right. No, that's actually, it's kind of a double-edged sword because... It's kind of overwhelming to go into the biggest, you know, the biggest race right away. But at the same time, if you have some problems, it's an endurance race, so you can recover. Versus if you did a sprint race first, you know, and you have an issue like maybe we had, you'd be totally done. You wouldn't really have a chance to understand what happened. So um, I would not change anything that happened because it's helped us learn so fast. And I, obviously I wish that we had figured some stuff out earlier, but that's just not realistic. Like you have to put miles on the car to figure out how it works. So the team has done an awesome, awesome job of... of fixing all the small things that we had and now that we know we're stronger than you know we will have ever been without the problems for a young driver like you you've been part of this established uh setup here at united for a couple of years now with young costs it is a building process mm-hmm. towards something greater and better yeah two very different atmospheres can you still get the kind of buzz that you're looking for and a developmental program that you can with being ultimately competitive same with with with, with United, with with United or with yeah yeah with United yeah, yeah I mean um, it's funny because when I first came to United I kind of watched Felipe um, Albuquerque do a little bit of the same thing of coming in and they had never been in LMP2 before and I had no idea what was going on so I was watching him like teach a bit in the same way like well we need to have these things to be successful you know for driver changes and all this stuff um, but that's still even though United has got a lot of experience you know there's still opportunities to learn things and it's awesome to be a part of the team because nobody in racing is ever not trying to develop and get faster and get better so there's opportunities to bring knowledge that i learned in imsa over here and vice versa for sure fantastic stuff so tell me for 2019 i keep having to remind myself what year it is yeah <laughs> what does success look like for willow what does success look like it would be 
Well, in LMS, now that it's my third year here, consistent podiums is... I don't have any expectations, but that's, I think, what we're... I mean, I know that I'm personally at the level now. Um, I've never done a series for more than two years, so coming back here for a third year is really awesome to apply the knowledge. And we've been on the podium before, and I know that we can do it. So um, working with Alex and Ryan is going to be great. I know they're very strong drivers. We have a great lineup. Um, so really aiming for podiums. Uh, in the U.S., it is so so different, and the tracks are so much more cutthroat and difficult. You know, there's no there's no runoff in some tracks. It's like it's really tough to drive. So for me personally, just to get on the pace of the the top guys, or at least as close as I can be. Um, and if we could get on the podium this year, that would be an absolute that'd be a victory. Um, although never ruling out an actual win, of course. But um, we're pushing for everything we've got, and I'm really trying to get myself personally prepared for um, to be the best driver I can for the future. Great stuff. For now, yeah. we'll be talking, I'm sure, later this sure. season. Well, yep. let's get this We'll keep soon. pushing. Yeah. Good stuff. Joined on the phone uh, on what, uh, while we record this, is Sunday evening after watching a quite extraordinary end to a quite extraordinary race. Uh, Silverstone 24 Hours this year is for little Citroen C1 city cars. There were 99 of those cars on the grid. Race has just finished, and uh, the race win was taken on the very last lap. Somewhere in the pack, though, is a name, well, unfamiliar to most, uh, Richard Roberts, but a voice probably more familiar, because that's the pseudonym, for Darren Cox. Darren, good afternoon. Good afternoon. And uh, how did your race go before we get to what that was like as a, as a, as a spectacular? Well, we were doing it for some uh, uh, fun. It was sort of a late Christmas party, if you like, for the, the, one of my uh, teams that uh, worked with me. And uh, we decided to, uh, to go and buy one of these uh, little Citroen C1s and uh, have a go at the Silverstone 24 hours. So, uh, yeah, it was uh, fun. There were some people taking it properly seriously. There were some very, very good drivers. I've just seen um, someone uh, walk past that's well-known to you and your listeners, uh, Marino Franchitti. Uh, was one of the drivers on the grid. So, yes, there was uh, a very widespread of preparation and uh, amongst the cars and drivers. Um, I, I'm hearing that this club alone um, has caused a spike, uh, the first increase in licences issued by what was the MSA and now Motorsport UK for a number of years um, just because of this race. So you think there's 450 drivers here um, and there was a lot of crosses on the back of a lot of cars indicating that they were novices it looked like absolutely awesome for give us an idea but kind of the purchase price and budget to get one of those cars into racing with the safety kit and um, what's it cost the team to do that race well we bought a car that was already done um so that you can pick those up anywhere between sort of six thousand and seven and a half thousand with variety of spares packages and history um, i'm sure there's a lot of uh, very very second hand runs available on ebay as we speak now um but if you want to build your own if you're that way inclined you can pick up uh, again on uh, four cent uh, four mentioned uh, sales website um, somewhere in the region of 750 for a sort of a well-worn uh, example. Uh, the kit um, is around £2,000, and then there's various other bits you need to buy. And, and I'm told if you do it all, all the work yourself and, uh, and are frugal with it, you know, somewhere in the region of £4,000 or even less would be um, a reasonable price to put one of these together. Now, you are a champion in 24-hour racing. It's not something that many people will know, but a winner of the 
then Brickcar, I think it was, 24 hours. Uh, back. Uh, the, the Creventec. Oh, well, Creventec, of course it was. In the, it was Creventec, yeah. In the BMW M3. Do you regret entering that under the pseudonym? Absolutely not. I, I think it's an amusing story. Um, uh, when uh, anyone asked me why, uh, why, uh, why race entries as Richard Roberts, and the story behind it was, when I was with my previous employer, it was frowned upon a little that um, I would race myself so um just to avoid any embarrassment probably on my part for my results normally um i decided to pick a name and, and richard roberts was the one uh, named after a famous driver in a, a comedy film called talladega nights and the, the main character played by will farrell is uh, ricky bobby so the english version is richard roberts and yes that's uh, how i've raced for the last uh, four or five years now, come on we're probably out of the uh, the contractual obligations it was another reason why uh, you raced under a pseudonym when you were the, well, remind me, director of motorsport for, for Nissan? And that was one of my job titles at the time, yes. And what were you racing, Darren? Well, when I made my uh, comeback, as it were, after you know, racing when I was younger, uh, post-kids, yeah, I did start in a Toyota MR2, so um, <laughs> all, all of them, uh, anyone that speaks French, the bird. Uh, <laughs> it was affectionately uh, known as, uh, yeah, but then, yes, luckily um, we progressed a little, raced uh, a radical in the uh, 24 hours when it was the brick car 24 hours and won our class um, and uh, I always like telling that story because there was a, um, a Janetta in um, second place with some very very famous and fast drivers in it um, and uh, then yes uh, lucked in really with um, deciding to race with, with Martin Short and uh, Richard Neary and Charles Lamb the following year and uh, and won the, uh, the 24 hours uh, Funnily enough, from last on the grid, which is uh, exactly what's happened uh, this weekend. Mega stuff. Is there a bit of a lesson here? We're, we're seeing uh, 24-hour racing, certainly at the ACO level, uh, rather struggling for a future. Is there a bit of a lesson here, do you think, for those that are looking for these multi-million dollar budgets now? Well, I think I would never uh, consider that Le Mans would be at risk as a 24-hour racer. I, I, you know, and I've been, I've stepped away from it, and I was close to it um, as I was. But obviously, read every single word you write, Graham, about the subject. Um, but uh, you know, obviously, there's some, some, you know, uh, questions about the WEC. But you know, the big 24-hour races are all still very well um, supported, both from um, competitors and, and brands. And you know, I, I include the Spa 24 Hours and Nürburgring 24 Hours. I was at the Daytona 24 Hours this year, but fantastic event with some big names in that race, both on the, the manufacturer side and the driver side. So I think, you know, 24-hour racing in itself is is in rude health, as it always nearly is. Um, it's those championships that are bolted to it that, um, you know, always tend to uh, struggle when there's a, a downturn or a, or a change of events or, or a rules change or a mood change amongst manufacturers, which is what we've seen with uh, Formula E taking a lot of the budgets, as we know, away from our beloved um, Le Mans 24 Hours. It's all right. I'm going to let you get on for uh, a Sunday evening of relaxation. I'm sure an adult beverage. Uh, for now, Dan Cox, thanks for joining us and well done. Well, I would just like to say one thing, Graham, which is, in fact, I'll say two things. Once again, I'm reminded of the fantastic job that the marshals do at these 24-hour races. Um, the, the, the conditions were horrendous. It was brilliant for us drivers. I had a fantastic session about five o'clock in the morning. It was raining and the light was getting better and I had a, a brilliant time in this front-wheel drive car. Lift-off oversteer was the order of the day, but the guys in orange were 
very, very busy, snatching a lot of cars, some of which were upside down, which was, um, it would have been amusing if it didn't look so dangerous. Um, so I'd like to personally say, and I'm sure everyone in the pit lane would like to say a big thank you to those guys, not just at this meeting, but all the times that they support us around the world. And this weekend, it just brought it to the forefront again. And I'd also like to say a big sorry to the team um, at Circuit Pro, um, Simon Harrison, um, and the guys that deserve to win this race they they were brilliant we shared a garage with them this is why i feel so sorry for them they they conducted themselves brilliantly um really great bunch of guys one of the drivers was patrick watson if i'd have said to a 13 year old me that i'd be chewing the cud and sharing a garage with patrick watts when he was a top level touring car driver i, I think i would have uh, uh, not believed myself so um yeah really sorry for them what an amazing race they lost it on the last lap um, and I'm sure there'll be a replay somewhere on YouTube. It's well worth watching the last 10 minutes of this race. And you can't believe that after 24 hours, it came down to uh, an overtake on the very, very last lap. So uh, a brilliant event. And, you know, if anyone is interested in getting involved in 24-hour racing and listen to you know Radio Le Mans, listen to your podcast, read your uh, website, you know, this is an amazing club. And I was talking to the organisers. They franchise this idea across Europe, and it's, it's only growing. So um, um, I know that uh, probably the American listeners won't know, even know what a Citroen C1 is, but um, certainly in Europe, this thing's going to grow. And for very, very reasonable money, you can be behind the wheel of a car that's in an amazing 24-hour race. Brilliant. DC, ever the enthusiast. Great to catch up with you. We'll catch up soon again on uh, another issue of the moment. Thanks a lot, Nathan. All the best. And that was an even half dozen number of guests for this week's episode of Inside the Sports Car Paddock. Really hope that you're enjoying the insights and knowledge and wisdom that our pal Jeff Brown brings us every week. And then the somewhat who knows who list of guests that come on and tell us about whatever they're doing, whatever we're thinking about, etc., etc. Really enjoying this show. And it's really cool to see that it has taken off just simply by the traffic numbers is something that folks hopefully you are enjoying as well so if you are do us a favor and share it let your friends who enjoy motor racing know about our inside the sports car paddock weekly show and maybe some of the other weekly shows that we do and other features here on the good old marshall pruitt podcast and for those who are interested in looking back at our full archives so if you're coming in and somewhat new you want to check out the 500 plus episodes we have done since we launched in May of 2016, go ahead and visit Marshall Pruitt Podcast, and it's all there. MarshallPruittPodcast.com. We got it all. Uh, it's broken down into segments, and there's a great little search function, too, that'll help you weave around and look for whatever little fun stuff, oddities, sound features, you name it. So there you go. MarshallPruittPodcast.com, our home for everything and all the various ways you might want to subscribe. All right. Well, with all that said, I am Marshall Pruitt. This is the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. Thank you for listening.